Well, happy Easter. I'm so glad to have you here in Mesa and in Ahwatukee. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor of Generation Church, and we are here today celebrating because Jesus is alive, isn't he? Come on. You got to give God praise if you know that your Savior defeated the grave. That means that he can defeat sin and death in your life, too. So before I jump into this message, I want to let you know, the next couple weeks, you get to help decide what we're going to talk about in church, okay? So if you text 555-888 with the keyword G-C-A-Z, you'll get an auto response, and you get to vote on the topic for the next two weeks' sermons, and the top two things will win. Uh, We'll talk about those subjects. So make sure you vote, and then you get to come back and hear whatever it is that you want to hear about. So I want to jump into this message today. It's Easter Sunday. Christ is risen. We have every reason to celebrate. And Easter shows us our God is loving and powerful. That's the good news, that Jesus lived a perfect life. He loved us enough to go to the cross, and he was powerful enough to rise again through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 4.25 says this. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Aren't you glad that you've been made right with God this morning through Jesus? I mean, that's so good. You've been made right with God, in good standing with God. The death and resurrection of Jesus shows us that God is not just loving, but he's also powerful. If he was only loving, but not powerful, even though he wanted to help us, he wouldn't be able to. If he was only powerful, but not loving, he wouldn't want to help us even if he could but he's loving and powerful. And we see that through the death and resurrection. Now, I want you to know, if you're going through a hard time right now, maybe you've gone through some difficult things in life recently, and one of the lies that the enemy will come and speak to you when you go through a hard time is this. He'll say, God doesn't really love you. He'll say, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this right now. That's a lie. And I want you to know, whenever you're tempted to doubt that God loves you, I want you to know the cross proves that God loves you. The cross proves God's love for you. 1 John 4.10 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is awesome and it's unique as it applies to Jesus. There is only one word in the English language that communicates this idea, the idea that someone would satisfy wrath by taking the penalty for the offense that caused that wrath. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the punishment for the sins that we committed and appeased God's wrath towards sin. He did this because he loves us. And maybe you've wondered, well, why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did that have to happen? You know, why, why couldn't he just have done something else and, and earned our salvation another way? But we are told through scripture that sin is so serious to God that blood had to be shed for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So someone's blood was gonna be shed. It was either gonna be ours Or you can place your faith in Jesus and allow his blood to be sufficient for the penalty of your sins and my sins. 
So maybe you've wondered about crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross, and we don't always have a full appreciation for everything that that entails. Crucifixion was the probably most horrendous way to die you can imagine. This practice was really invented around the 6th century BC, about 600 years before Jesus by the Persians. They assaulted, you know, different nations, and they would crucify uh, people that they captured, and then Alexander the Great brought this practice back to the Mediterranean, like, thanks a lot, guy. That wasn't the best move ever, I don't think. Like, what was, what was he thinking? And then the Romans, they really got good at it. So they would, they would really practice this, and they would crucify rebels. Uh, about 71 BC, right before Jesus came on the scene, they crucified 6,000 rebels, including a guy named Spartacus. Maybe you've heard of him. So the Romans were good at crucifixion. In fact, they wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens because it was considered too terrible something to do to a citizen. Here's what they did to Jesus. First, they arrested him, and they beat him mercilessly. And we need to think about what he went through and what he suffered for us. They punched him, they beat him, and they got a blindfold wrapped around his eyes. And so, you know, getting hit would be bad enough, but getting hit when you can't even see anything, embrace yourself, and it's just coming at you again and again. Obviously, he would have had concussions, and, and he would have been severely wounded by this beating. And then they scourged him with what's called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails, these long leather straps that had heavy metal balls at the end and hooks in them made out of metal and bone and glass. And this torturer would whip the victim and the metal balls would tenderize the flesh and the hooks would dig in. And as he whipped, he would twist and rip this whip away and it would just tear shreds of flesh off. This was something that often led to the person being whipped. They would die from shock, just from this. This is how bad it was. Then they put a, a robe around him, and they put a crown of thorns down on his head. They dug it down on his forehead, and they mocked him and said, Hail the king of the Jews. They worshiped him in mockery. They forced him then to carry his cross to Golgotha. And we think today that maybe he carried the cross beam section. It's called the patibulum, and it weighed about 110 pounds. And he was forced to carry this, but he was already so beaten and so wasted, essentially, that he couldn't carry the weight of it. He collapsed under the weight of the cross. It would have crushed him, essentially. And the Romans forced this other guy named Simon to carry his cross the rest of the way because Jesus was already too weak and, and too beat up to even finish that part of the task. They took him there on the hill, and they nailed him to this cross. You got to think about that. We say it so often, I think that maybe we lose an appreciation for what that means. They took five to seven inch rough metal spikes and drove them through his wrist, which was considered part of the hands, and through his feet, nailing him to this cross. This would have shot agonizing pain all throughout his body. And then as they lifted this cross up, as they lifted him up, doctors say that probably multiple bones in his body were dislocated from their joints. Not only that, but he couldn't breathe. And often, victims of crucifixion, they would suffocate to death. That's how they died. So Jesus is up on this cross the wrath of God is poured out on him spiritually. So he's not just suffering physically, but God the Father, whom he loves, who has loved him as his only son, turns his back on Jesus on the cross as he would turn his back towards our sin. Jesus was forsaken in that moment. And that's what we see in Matthew 27, 46. It says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama shabakthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you got to understand, when he said this line, this wasn't just a cry of agony. But I don't know if you all realize this. I don't know how long you've been a Christian or not. Uh, Maybe you've never seen this before. But Jesus quoted in that moment the first verse of Psalm 22. And this was a very well-known psalm. This was one of the beloved psalms of the Hebrew people. It'd be like if I was standing here right now and I said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You would know exactly where I was going with that. Okay, he's praying the Lord's Prayer. That's what was happening. Jesus is on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people there around him would have been, oh, I know this. I know this chapter. Psalm 22 was written by King David the greatest king in the history of the Jewish people. And God promised him that your throne will be established forever. And through your lineage, your kingdom will never fail. Jesus came through the line of David. In fact, the first verse of Matthew says that Jesus, this is his lineage, the son of David. And and he went throughout the scriptures and in the gospels, people said, hey, son of David, have mercy on us. You're the son of David. And this Psalm, Psalm 22, this is so powerful because it was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus by David, about the son of David, describing not just what happened to him, but what people would say while it's happening. I want you to think about that. God sent his son into the world and he had foreordained exactly what would happen. Jesus came knowing exactly what would happen. How amazing is God's love for us? Aren't you grateful for his love right now? I want you to see this, and and maybe some of you will appreciate what this means. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? He cried out to God in verse 6 of Psalm 22, but I am a worm and not a man. And this word worm, it doesn't just represent the fact that he was crushed, but this word worm was translated in the Old Testament again and again as the word scarlet because this particular type of worm was crushed to make red dye. And so I think this also represents prophetically that Jesus will be on the cross made scarlet, red and ripped to shreds. He was crushed for our iniquities. It says, he is scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Remember, Jesus was despised and rejected. Psalm 22, verse six. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Remember, Matthew 27 goes on to tell us, they pass by hurling insults, shaking their heads. Verse eight. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what the Pharisees said when Jesus was on the cross. They said, uh, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. I mean, this is incredible that this lays this out in such detail. Verse 11 of Psalm 22. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Think about how Jesus prayed alone in the garden. And he said, can't you even pray with me while I get ready to suffer? And then he was arrested alone and his disciples ran. He was alone up on the cross. Verse 14 says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. When Jesus died on the cross, the professional executioner ran a spear up through his side and it pierced his pericardial sac around his heart and blood and water flowed out. Doctors tell us that the water that flowed out shows that he died of a broken heart, a literal broken heart. He had a heart attack on the cross. And here's David prophetically talking about this a thousand years earlier. He says, my heart has turned to wax and it has melted within me. 
just like what happened to Jesus. Verse 15, my mouth is dried up like broken pottery and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus on the cross in John 19 said, I thirst. In fact, he couldn't even talk really well. They thought that he was calling out to Elijah. They couldn't really understand his words. Verse 16 says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. Think about this, how incredible this is. Jesus called the Pharisees dogs. He was crucified next to thieves. And then David wrote, a thousand years before Jesus, they pierced my hands and feet. I want you to think about this. This is 400 years before crucifixion was even invented. And he writes in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and feet. In verse 18, it says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Matthew 27 says that they cast lots for his garments and divided his clothes. Verse 20, 21, deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I want you to see that because the dogs, Jesus called the religious leaders. The lion uh, often represents in the Old Testament the ruling authorities. And the wild oxen was often a title given to the people of Israel. So here's Jesus saying, the religious leaders, the ruling authorities, and the people I came to save, they encircle me and they want to destroy me. Verse 24, though, as we go further into this chapter, the tone changes, and it changes from anguish to victory. Verse 24 says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God punished Jesus for our sins, but it was only temporary. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. See that? Remember Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. He said, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Every knee will bow, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Does that sound familiar to any of you who are Christians? It says in the Bible, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus rose from the grave and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Psalm 22, verse 30. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Here we are 2,000 years later. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He now, you need to realize this. This is the last verse of Psalm 22. He has done it is the declaration. This is the exact Hebrew equivalent of what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. Do you realize that? On the cross, Jesus said the first verse in the last verse of Psalm 22, which prophetically described how the Messiah would come and die for the people to save them from their sins. And then he would rise again and rule and reign forever. Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah. I've come to save you. Do you recognize me now? This is amazing. Jesus came into this world knowing he would die like this, but he loved us enough to do it anyway. So maybe you wonder, what does the cross mean for me? Well, remember, the cross proves God loves you. You cannot question God's love for you. In fact, when something goes wrong in your life and you're tempted to question whether or not God loves you, I want you to think of the cross. Think of the cross and remember, no, no, no. God loved me so much that he gave his only son for me. He took our place. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you grateful for that? Come on, doesn't, don't you just gotta give God praise when you think about that? It, it doesn't say, when I went to Sunday school and started being a religious person, Christ died for me. It said, when we were still sinners, he died for us. I mean, this is amazing. God didn't just declare his love for us like a romantic Ed Shireen song. Like, he demonstrated his love for us. I, I wish some ladies, some single ladies would remember this. Don't just say you love me. Show me you love me, right? Like, like I hope that you'll take that in. This is what Jesus did for us. He demonstrated God's love for us. So what does this mean? What does the cross mean for us? It means you're a friend of Jesus. You're a friend of God. The word of God says greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you and calls you friend. The cross means that your guilt and shame is gone because Jesus has carried it away. The cross means that God cannot see your sins any longer because they have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. The cross means that God can't be angry at your sin any longer because he has already satisfied his wrath by pouring it out on Jesus. The cross means that you have been released from captivity because Jesus has paid your ransom with his life. Your life was redeemed with the ransom of royalty. Come on, you're, you gotta remember, the cross means that your debt has been erased. Jesus has paid the price. The cross reminds us of God's love, that he loved us, not based on what we do. God loves us based on what Jesus did on the cross. So that's a good reminder. We need to be reminded of that on Easter. But remember, he's not just loving, he's also powerful. He didn't just love us, but he had the power to rise again and give us victory. So we celebrate on Easter the resurrection that Jesus is alive. But this year is April 1st. Easter happened to fall on April 1st. All right? So I think we have to ask, are we fools? Are we fools for believing this? I mean, come on. Some, you've wondered before, am I an Easter fool? Like, and there's, there's skepticism about whether or not Jesus rose from the grave. I mean, this happened a long time ago, 2,000 years, and we're more skeptical than ever than this day and age. Even if we see the video evidence, we're like, oh, that could have been doctored, computer graphics, anything's possible now. So we should ask, did Jesus rise again? Well, first, it's important to note that he plainly predicted that he would rise again. He said he would. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Think about this. The whole time Jesus is teaching his disciples, listen, y'all, I'm gonna die for you. I'm going to be buried in a tomb. And then after three days, I will come back. And I think the whole time they're just listening to him going like, I don't really get it. Like, do you? Is this like a metaphor for something? Jesus is like, no, 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 listen, I'm gonna die and rise. So what do you mean by rise? Like, and so when he died, they were all like, oh no, he's dead. Like, isn't it sad? Like, they just didn't get it. They didn't get it at the time. But people question, they think, well, maybe this didn't really happen. So what are some of the skeptics' uh, objections to the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe they, they say, maybe he never actually died. Maybe he just passed out. 
So just let, let's just think about that, okay? Beaten to within an, an inch of his life, flesh ripped off his body, possibly exposing internal organs, nailed to a cross, had a spear driven up through his ribcage, which pierced his heart. Then he was wrapped in about 100 pounds of linen, which would have suffocated him if he wasn't already dead, placed into a cave with no medical care. And then we're supposed to think that he just kind of like, ugh, woke up, rolled the stone away himself, and was like, oh, I feel better. Right? Like, if you think that he didn't die, you have seen way too many movies. If I was making a movie about the resurrection and crucifixion of Jesus, I would not call it the passion of the Christ. I would call it die hard. Because he died really hard, okay? He really died. People wonder, was he a ghost? I saw a show about a guy who talks to ghosts. Was Jesus a ghost? Okay, well, we don't think he's a ghost because the testimony of the witnesses that saw him said, I clung to him physically. Jesus told them, touch my hands. Put your hands in the wounds in my side. Jesus ate with them. He appeared to them and he was like, yo, pass me some fish and chips. I'm hungry. I just saved the world, okay? Like, he was physically there. They'll wonder, you know, maybe he never rose. Maybe he just stayed dead. And, and that's a, an objection, you know? And here's the reason why we don't have to worry about that either because he was buried in the tomb of a wealthy, famous person. Joseph of Arimathea was well-known in the community. So if you heard that Jesus was risen and you didn't believe it, what would you do? You'd say, well, let's go to the tomb and check it out. Let's look for ourselves. Like, for example, in Phoenix, the first governor of Arizona, uh, Governor Hunt, is buried in this, like, pyramid tomb. It's called Hunt's Tomb. It's right by the Phoenix Zoo. So if I told you, guys, I just saw Governor Hunt. He's alive, he's back. You would eventually be like, yo, let's go look to the tomb and check out for ourselves. And if you went there, you would see, oh, no, okay, the bones are still in the casket. He's still there. Uh, and then people wonder, well, maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe they, halluc maybe they were so sad that he died, they hallucinated that he was alive. Well, there's some things about this witnessing of Jesus being alive that they kind of show you it wasn't a hallucination. First, it's really interesting that they hallucinated him healthy and regenerated, but with the scars from his wounds. And psychologists say, you wouldn't really hallucinate like that. And then they also tell us that over 500 people saw him alive at one time, up to, up to 500 people at a time. Think about that. You know, you might have a hallucination depending on what you smoked this week. Uh, but getting you and everyone in the room where you're at to hallucinate the exact same thing, have the same exact story, uh, it's impossible. And then you go out into the community and you're like, yeah, I saw him. And, and if people are like, I don't believe it, you could say, you know, talk to my cousin. You know, he saw him. And all these people were walking around like, yeah, he's, he's alive. You know, he's back to handing out fishes and loaves. He's preaching and it's cool. He's, he's alive. So I, I don't think he was a hallucination. We wonder... Maybe they made this up. Maybe the disciples, they just concocted this story. So maybe they just made this up. Well, if they made it up, they did a really bad job, okay? One of the reasons that it would have been a bad job is because the primary witnesses to the resurrection were women. And in this culture, in this day and age, women were not respected. If you're a woman, you say, I don't feel respected now, really weren't respected back then. 
In this day, a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in court because they wouldn't take her testimony seriously. But yet women are named as the first key eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And they're named specifically. So you could have gone to them and say like, hey, tell me, what did you see? Right? So, so and by the way, if you have a problem with women preachers, the first gospel with preachers were women, okay? Uh, some of you need to let that sink in. Just like think about it for a second. Then people wonder, well, maybe it was a legend that just developed over time, but you have to understand that these gospels were recorded just a handful of years after this happened. It wasn't enough time for a legend to develop. Like Steve Jobs died in 2011, changed the world, but nobody thinks he's the son of God, right? Nobody thinks he's a God who became man. It wasn't enough time for them to make a legend like this. So there's all these just logical reasons you can think through and start to realize like, man, I think Jesus had to rise again, but then there's even more. There's circumstantial evidence. There's things that happened, and something had to cause that effect. Like, for example, Jesus' family started to worship him as God. Now, you might convince one or two gullible people that you're God, but you will not convince your mom that you are God. (laughs) She would never buy into that. In fact, the Bible specifically tells us his own brothers didn't believe in him when he was ministering. They said, they were like, he's crazy, he's insane. Someone lock him up for his own safety. And all of a sudden, they're leading his church and worshiping him as God. What would have caused that? Something happened that caused his worst enemy to worship him as God. Saul of Tarsus was going around arresting Christians, persecuting them, killing them. He hated Christians. And all of a sudden, he goes from hating Christians to being the MVP of Christianity. Writes a majority of the New Testament. Something happened, right? And then think about this. Jesus' family and Saul, they were devout Jews, And for a Jew to worship a false god meant they were risking an eternity in hell. So they were so convinced that they were willing to risk, according to Judaism, an eternity in hell, they worshiped him as God. I think maybe they saw something. Something changed the disciples. The disciples, they were scared, they were afraid, they were timid. But something happened that caused them to be bold and courageous And they were willing to live their life impoverished and be tortured and even killed for their faith. Let me ask you this. Would you die for someone you love? Yeah, maybe. Maybe if you love them a lot. But would you die for a lie? Would you die for what you knew was a lie? Like if I said to you, hey guys, I'm gonna rob a bank this week, okay? Because the church needs some fixing up, all right? But... (laughs) I need you to say that you robbed the bank and go to jail for me. Can you do that? Yeah, you'd be like, nah, I don't even like you that much at all. Like, I would not, I would not lie for you at all. I'm not gonna get punished for you, certainly. But the disciples, they were willing to be killed for their faith that Jesus had risen. Think about the fact that worship changed. For thousands of years, the Jewish people worshiped God on the Sabbath day. The Ten Commandments, one of the commandments says that the Sabbath day is holy, and they worshiped him on Saturday, but then all of a sudden, all these Jews in the Middle East start worshiping the, the Lord on Sunday morning. Why? Why would they do that? They started saying, this is the Lord's day. Think about the fact that the tomb of Jesus was not enshrined. 
This is interesting that in the day of Jesus, archaeologists can find more than 50 tombs which have been enshrined where holy people, religious leaders, uh, prophets were buried, and people, they would enshrine their tombs, make it a place of worship. You would come and you'd pray because they believed that, well, if their bones are in there, then this is a holy place. But we have no record whatsoever that anyone visited the tomb of Jesus to worship him there because he wasn't there, Right? There was no point worshiping at an empty cave. Today, Jews visit Abraham's tomb in Hebron. Buddhists go to India to visit Buddha's tomb. Muslims go to Medina to visit the tomb of Muhammad. But Christians worship Jesus all around the world because he's alive. We don't have to go to a tomb. So you have to ask yourself, if I were on a jury, would I be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is alive? And maybe you consider the evidence and you think through, well, there's maybe some other possibilities, but if you're intelligent, and if you're honest with yourself, and you think through the facts, the only credible explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the grave. In fact, I would say it takes more faith to believe that he did not rise from the grave than to believe that he did. So I think we can confidently say, as believers, man, I don't have blind faith. I have faith that is based on evidence, evidence that Jesus is alive. He is alive. So this was the central message of the early Christians, that Jesus is alive, and here's what it means for you. Here's what it means for you. So that's what we should think about. What does the resurrection mean for us? What does this mean? The resurrection shows us that God is powerful. He's not just an all-loving God, but he's an all-powerful God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says this. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. If you ever wonder, like, is he powerful enough to do something about my situation? You can be reminded because of Jesus. Yeah, he's powerful enough to raise the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. What does the resurrection mean for us? It means that we can trust God's other promises. Jesus called his shot. He said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. If God calls his shot, he's going to hit a home run. If he says it, you can believe that he's gonna do it. That's what the resurrection means. It means that when you go through a hard time, it's only momentary. Though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning, the way that Jesus rose in the morning. It means that you're a new creation and united with God through Christ. The old you is gone. What you did is forgotten by God. The resurrection means that you can resist and overcome sin because of the power that rose Christ from the grave. The resurrection means you don't have to live in fear of death. There's a lot of people that are afraid in this world. They're afraid about what's North Korea gonna do? What virus is gonna break out? What are these mobs gonna do as they riot? You don't have to fear death because we've already seen the first fruits example of what's gonna happen upon death. You will rise again. You've seen a preview of your future through Jesus. Isn't that good? You don't have to fear that. We don't have to stay the same. That's the other re resurrection good news. You can't stay the same. You can't. Because when you encounter Jesus, it changes you. It might cost you, but if you didn't lose anything, you didn't gain anything. You might have to tell some people, I can't go with you because I'm following Jesus now. I'm, following, I'm not the same person you used to know me as. The resurrection means you can't keep this to yourself. 
This news is too good not to share that Jesus died for you so you could be right with God and he rose again so that you could have victory over sin and death and eternal life through him. The cross shows us that God is willing to save and the resurrection of Jesus shows us that God is able to save. He's willing and he's able. Don't you know that? That's the good news, that God is willing. The cross shows us his love. The resurrection demonstrates his power. If you are sick, the cross shows us that God is willing to heal your sickness. And the resurrection shows us that God is able to heal your sickness. If your relationship is broken and you feel like, man, there's no thing, there's no hope, we're just going to get divorced, right? The cross shows us God is willing to restore your relationship. The resurrection shows us that God is able to restore your relationship. If you can't pay your bills, you don't have enough, the cross shows you that God is willing to provide. He provided his son as a sacrifice. And the resurrection shows us he's able to provide. Man, you need to know this is good news, that God is both willing and able. We don't just have power as Christians, we have resurrection power. We don't just have joy, we have resurrection joy. We don't just have hope, we have resurrection hope. God is willing and he is able. He is loving and he is powerful. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aren't you grateful for God's love and his power? Let's bow our heads right now. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to send your son into this world to die in our place. God, we praise you that you are powerful enough to raise him again from the grave. Right now, we turn our focus to you and our attention to you. We don't take for granted the life we have through the life of Jesus. Maybe you're in this room right now, wherever you're at, and you say, I need to give my life to God. I need to invite Jesus into my life. I want to be a friend of Jesus. I want to experience the forgiveness that he makes available to me. And it doesn't matter what you've done, what's been done to you, where you've been, or who has rejected you previously. God will not reject you. He cannot forsake you because he already forsook his son, Jesus. And if you're ready to come to him, if you're ready to start new with Jesus and give your life to him and experience all the joy and goodness that he wants to bless you with, you can take that step of faith today. What better day to place your faith in Jesus than Easter Sunday? So if you want to do that, if you want to take that step of faith, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. And wherever you're at right now, if you're in Mesa, if you're in Ahwatukee, you can pray this with me. And God sees what's in your heart. He hears you, and he will respond to this. So let's just pray together. Just say, God, I know that I've sinned, and I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that I committed. And I believe that he rose again so that I could be victorious over death and live eternally. Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for your power that changes me. I want to give you my life from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet here and in Ahwatukee? We just got to celebrate what God has done on Easter, and we want to celebrate what he's done right now. I know that some people, they just place their faith in Jesus. They just pray that prayer with me, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a really, really long time, and I want to celebrate with you. We celebrate that here, so I'm going to count to three, and then wherever you at, I want you to shoot that hand up bold, loud, and proud, and just say, I prayed that prayer. One, God loves you. Get ready to shoot your hand up. Two, welcome to the family. Three, shoot it up, and we're going to celebrate. Awesome. 
Awesome, awesome, awesome. So good. Come on, isn't God good? We got to give him praise this morning because he redeemed us from the grave and he raised us to life. Get ready to lift your voices. Let's just praise his name. Come on.